I'm Lynn Harder, host of Defining Moments, a podcast produced by WOUB Public Media. Humans are storytellers. We tell stories to make sense of birthing and dying and everything in between. This podcast features stories about health and healing. It grew out of my desire to disrupt the silence that too often surrounds vulnerability. Join me as guests and I explore what it means to live well in the midst of inescapable illness and hardship. Hello, I'm Laura Ellingson, guest host of today's Defining Moments podcast. I'm a professor of communication and women's and gender studies at Santa Clara University and a previous guest on Defining Moments. I'm thrilled to be here today in the role of the host. I'm joined by Dr. Leland Spencer, Associate Professor in the Department of Interdisciplinary and Communication Studies at Miami University. He is the co-author of Campuses of Consent, just out from the University of Massachusetts Press, and also author of Women Bishops and Rhetorics of Shalom, and as well as co-editor of Transgender Communication Studies. Leland has published more than 20 peer-reviewed scholarly journal articles in outlets such as Critical Studies in Mass Communication, Communication Studies, and Women in Communication. I'll be talking with Leland today about his powerful essay, Stairs and Prayers, which explores the complex intersections of disability with sexuality, gender, and religion. Thanks for being here with me today, Leland. Thank you for having me, and thank you for being here as well, Laura. It's great to talk to you, and thanks to Lynn Harder for organizing and for hosting the uh, overall podcast. I really appreciate it, and I look forward to the conversation. Great. Leland, for our listeners who have not yet read your essay, could you please retell the story that you shared there about what happened when you were drinking tea and doing some work in a Starbucks? Sure. So my defining moments piece begins uh, by noting that strangers often stare at me in public. And I'm usually unaware of that, but it's probably because I walk with a noticeable limp. And sometimes strangers go a step further and come up to me and pray for my healing. And on the day that I write about in the piece, I noticed another patron in Starbucks, and he asked if he could join me at my table. And when he did, he started praying out loud for God to strengthen my legs and my back and free me from pain. And so in the article, I reflect on the inappropriateness of the prayer and of his presumption and his interruption of me, but also my suspicion that if he knew more about me, uh, that he might find it off-putting to learn that I am simultaneously gay and a person of faith and a person with a disability, and that my scholarly expertise is at least in part the intersection of LGBTQ and religious identities. And so that's the overall kind of quick summary of the Defining Moments piece. That's such a wonderful example of what feminist scholars call intersectionality of identity, right? We're never just one identity at a time, but instead we all live in these intersections of so many aspects of who we are. And in this story, you're not just disabled. At the same time, you're also gay and Christian. And then you also mentioned your Midwestern manners, which I thought was great. 
and and that you're also male and and white, right? So let's talk first about living with cerebral palsy and how others respond to you as a disabled person. And then I'd like to talk some more about uh, other identities as well. You mentioned being stared at a lot and Irvin Goffman's classic theory of, of stigma describes identities such as disability that taint us or what he calls spoiling our identity. Can you describe some of the ways that strangers in public typically communicate to you the stigma of disability? Sure. So most often, I have to begin by saying most often that doesn't happen, or if it does, I don't notice. Uh, So when it does happen, here are some examples. Sometimes people will ask me if I'm okay or if I'm in pain. Um, Like they'll see my limp not as something that is ordinary, but maybe this just happened, right? So Mm -hmm. they'll say, are you okay? Um, Other times it's clear to me eventually that people expect that I also have a cognitive or intellectual disability as well. So if the first thing they see is the way that I walk, they might then be surprised to hear the way that I speak. Um, And sometimes people will assume that I can't climb stairs or something like that. But even in giving these examples, um, I almost feel as though I'm overstating it because it's really quite rare that anything like that happens. Um, So very seldom when I'm moving through the world in public, Um, does something happen that calls disability to the front of my mind? Usually it's, it's there in the background and not something that's salient. So whatever judgments or impressions people are forming um, are happening silently, or I'm oblivious to uh, what's happening, Mm -hmm. which is certainly common as well. Well, it makes sense, right? You're doing, you're living your life. You've got other things to do. And I was resonating with some of what you said, because as an above knee amputee who often wears either skirts or cropped pants or in other ways, I display my, my leg prosthesis. Mm -hmm. For the most part, I think sort of like what you've said, people are not mean about it, but they stare, they notice, right? And then I often feel that sense of that part of my identity um, coming to the fore. The other thing you you mentioned in your piece is the idea that sometimes people tell you how inspired, and again, not that often, but you tell you how inspiring it is, right? That, that you are able to move through the world and, and to live your life. Uh, and that that can be very patronizing at times. Right. So the impression is that that's a compliment. Um, right. But it's not. It's really not a compliment. And I would really point listeners who are interested in that question to Harold and Russo, um, who authored the book Don't Call Me Inspirational, uh, for a very detailed and thorough answer about uh, why that's not a compliment, why that's patronizing instead. Um, and I cite that art, uh, book in my article. So if you want the full reference, it's there. But for me, the crux of the problem is uh, multifaceted. One part is that there's an implication of low expectations, that so little is expected of me that anything I accomplish is notable. There's also a profound selfishness in the statement, as though my life, my accomplishments, your life, your accomplishments exist purely for the benefit of someone else. Um, Mm -hmm. And 
probably most of all, and, and this may encompass the others too, but there's a reduction of a complex personhood into just a disability. And the stranger who offers this prayer for me at Starbucks is doing exactly this because he doesn't know anything about me. The only thing um, he knows about me is what he observed as I walked from the Starbucks counter getting a refill of my iced tea back to my table. And in, in that one moment, less than a minute, um, he makes a judgment about all of me, the whole of me. And that is quite problematic when we think about, as you mentioned earlier, the positionality of multiple identities coexisting in a person at one time. You're right, right. And I think that the that the idea that he makes so many assumptions, right, that he must be correct um, and therefore it, that approaching you is an appropriate thing to do is problematic even as um, it, he does not know, for example, that you do identify as a Christian. And so in the story, he doesn't ask about whether or not or, or how, you've, you know, how you might identify as a person of faith or not, right? He makes these, um, these assumptions. And then his prayer is an intercessory prayer, meaning one that is intended to beseech um, uh, God or another holy being, right, to, to help you in some way. Um, how do you reconcile his ideas about intercessory prayer with your own faith as a Christian? That's another good and really important question, Laura. And um, I, I do suppose that I could have said no uh, to his question about whether he could join me and, and then his question about whether to pray for me. But as you said, as I mentioned in the article, uh, the Midwestern politeness norm that I've been conditioned with all of these years mm -hmm. um, does, does not produce in me a likelihood to turn away the, the kindness of a stranger, the perceived kindness of a stranger. And so the metaphor that I use in the article is that this person in Starbucks prayed in a way that treated God as a vending machine, um, asking God to heal me and strengthen me and free me from pain, again, without ever asking if I was feeling any pain or weakness. And uh, that day, and most days, I, most days I don't, that day I was not. Mm -hmm. um, some days I wake up and my muscles are just not cooperating and I take a few ibuprofen with breakfast and I feel better. Uh, but most of the time I don't need to do that. Um, and so I, I just grieve about the narrowness of his understanding of prayer, at least as I experienced it in that moment, um, because I'd like to imagine more expansive kinds of prayer. What if we think about prayer not exclusively as a chance to supplicate in hopes of mm -hmm. directing God's actions to our own ends, but instead as an opportunity to broaden our own thinking. Another way of putting this is to pose the question, how can prayer change the one who prays mm -hmm. instead of being directed at changing someone else or changing something externally? Right, and it can also be about connection, an authentic connection of praying together, right? That could have been a moment in which he invited you, for example, to, to contribute to the prayer. 
um, instead of this more vending machine, as you say, approach, there's, there's at no point did it, was there a dialogic component to that, which I think is a missed opportunity. Right. And absolutely. And it's one of those, one of those moments where throughout the week and months that followed, I thought about so many better responses or interactions that I could have engaged in that moment. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was just such a stunning event when it happened that I, I didn't have the capacity to come up with some better way, some more comprehensive way of responding. And I, I kept hoping that I might see him again to, to be able to have a conversation, um, to, to be able to tell him something about myself, to learn something about him. Um, but I had, I, you know, I went to that Starbucks a lot before I right. housed and moved to another town, but uh, never saw him there again. Um, and, and so it's, it is something that stuck with me for a long time that, wow, I, I really wish that I had responded in some different way or some better way um, that might yeah. have taught him something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very common feeling that we all have, right? Of being stunned in the moment and not knowing how to still be hopefully the be- our best self, right? Kind and, and helpful, but also make the point of, wow, did, did you really just say that? <laughs> did, did this just happen? And I think, you know, that's something that, um, that is beautiful about your essay is when, when you have enough time to process it, and think it through. You're able to really tease out quite a few implications. And and for those of us, the, the, the nerdier among us, right, you have these beautiful um, endnotes that where you really take the issues that come up in the narrative, in the story-driven part of this article, and then you explore them from in a more scholarly way by linking them to research that's been done um, about various kinds of identities and interactions. And I think that, that really strengthens uh, the contribution that you make in your in your piece. Thank you. Yeah, I I think you're exactly right that for me in the processing of this event, writing the article was one way to do that dialogic work to talk back mm-hmm. to 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 claim some agency for myself. Um, but instead of sharing it with him to share it with the readership of defining moments in health communication and now to the listeners of the podcast um, that, and, and I've found over and over in my life that when something is bugging me, um, Mm. I have to write about it or Mm -hmm. it won't. That's the only way to get it out. Um, Yep. Yeah. I, (laughs) <laughs> that resonates with me a lot. And it, one of the, you know, when you're doing that reflecting, it's a wonderful, a bit, um, your essay takes us on this wonderful journey with you, right? So instead of just saying, this happened and here's what I think, you're like, this happened and this is what I thought then and then later, right? And then that, that, that academic voice in the, in the end notes becomes an even later. So it's a, it's a beautiful journey. And one of the things that you talk about in the pace of that journey is, gee, I wonder what he would think about if he also knew that, that I'm gay, 
right? And that my performance of masculinity, and you you talked a little bit about your appearance that day, right? Um, and and I know you, so I know that your performance of of masculinity is not only not a toxic or hegemonic one, but a rather fabulous one, right? That's about your personality and your politics and your unique experiences. And this brings up the idea that some identities may be more readily visible or detectable in their performance, while others are possibly more readily ignored or discounted, um, which seems likely, although not definitely, likely in this case that he was ignoring your gender and sexuality here. How do you make sense of a, your gay masculinity as both a Christian and as a scholar with significant expertise in theology? So it doesn't surprise you at all to learn that I've never been deeply attached to traditional or hegemonic performances of masculinity. (laughs) Um, And in fact, I often repudiate such performances. And for me, one of the joys of coming out was Mm -hmm. a realization that I didn't need to perform the masculinities that I saw around me all the time. And uh, of course, you don't have to be gay to reject traditional masculinity, but I, I had sort of all, before I sorted out for myself that I was gay, mm-hmm. um, I did have some feelings of inadequacy about my masculinity, and I'm not sure I would have had exactly that language to put to it, but I would see masculinity performed in certain ways and realize that I did not perform masculinity in those ways and that I didn't want to and probably couldn't, um, even mm-hmm. if I wanted to. And uh, there's something about coming out that was very freeing to me. Um, and since then, I've read a lot of feminist theory and queer theory. And now I realize you don't even have to be gay to reject these things. Um, but in <laughs> in that moment, right, where I was in 2006, um, as a person just coming out, was was to say, hey, I'm free to perform masculinity in other kinds of ways. Um, and, and my gayness opens up that possibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Um, Yes, you're right that hegemonic and traditional performances of masculinity often uh, do not feel like a fit for me. Um, In one of the endnotes of the Defining Moments piece, I specifically reflect on the language uh, from his prayer that that God would strengthen my back and my legs. And Mm -hmm. I keep thinking about strength as counterposed with weakness. And so I, I wonder out loud in the end notes there if part of the weakness he perceived had to do with my performance of masculinity. I was almost definitely wearing purple. I was almost definitely uh, moving uh, in ways that, that don't look like traditional masculinity. Mm-hmm. And communication scholar Kurt Lindemann has shown um, that masculinity all... Uh, is always suspect in contexts of disability. Um, right. That, that disabilities sort of brings up the question of, is this person whose body is not normative in these ways adequately masculine? Um, and so I would point listeners to Lindemann's work that, that I cite in that piece uh, for, for a more... Uh, developed explanation um, of that theory, mm-hmm. but but that's certainly something that I was 
thinking about as I reflected on the experience and particularly on that language of weakness. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Cause you're talking about uh, the display or performance of masculinity with disability and yet also with sexuality, right? You've written a lot. And, and one of the reasons that so the things that's so strong about your piece is the narrative uh, voice and narrative arc, what I, what I called a journey earlier about it that becomes um really a, a, an example of a story, right? That invites identification, invites places where people can say, oh, that's like my experience and not like my experience. A lot of what you have written and what you've edited, articles and essays and the journal, touch on LGBTQ plus people's experiences in families, in public, in faith-based organizations such as churches, um, and the importance of coming out stories. Religions, and definitely including Christianity, are based on collections of stories about how the world came to be and what purpose humanity should serve in the world and how quote unquote good people, right, should live. And I'm a preacher's kid myself. Um, and so I remember a lot of grow- growing up and learning about Jesus, especially when I was young, um, through stories about Jesus's life, including songs that were based on Bible stories. Can you talk a little bit about how religious stories Um, could be constructed or interpreted or possibly reinterpreted to be welcoming and inclusive of LGBTQ plus people within faith communities? This is such an important question, Laura, and I would definitely point listeners to Patrick Chang's work that I cite in the Defining Moments piece. There are a lot of ways to answer that question, but Chang's uh, two books in particular, Radical Love is one of them, and the other is called From Sin to Amazing Grace. Uh, these two books offer, to my mind, some of the most accessible and simultaneously thoroughly researched treatments of queer theology. Chang suggests that at the core, both queerness and Christianity are about dissolving divisions. So queerness invites us to dissolve divisions of gender sex, sexuality, gender identity, relationality, and normalcy. Likewise, Chang argues the Christian tradition is about dissolving divisions between God and humankind, between people and each other, between the body and the spirit, between life and death. So for Chang, the story of Christianity is a coming out story. The incarnation of God in Christ is God's coming out of the closet, if you will, by taking on human form and dwelling among us. So Chang and other queer theologians and biblical scholars have done a lot of great work to reveal the queerness inherent in Christianity and other religious traditions as well. And I find there's a lot of power in encountering sacred texts from these perspectives, messages of hope amidst rejection, of challenging systems and structures of power and oppression, those are central both to queerness and to the Christian tradition. And so I find myself startled uh, when people still believe uh, that there can be no common ground between queerness and Christianity, because from that perspective, from my perspective, uh, Christianity is thoroughly and fundamentally queer. Um, and that's one of the things I love about it. <laughs> and that's so amazing, right? That the vision of the idea of, of humanity as made in the image of God, 
right? That, that that image includes queerness and isn't divided up into neat little boxes of male and female and white and black and gay and straight, right? That you could actually, not only that the Christian stories would include um, queer people or LGBTQ plus people, but that there's actually much for people who don't identify in those ways to learn in those stories through a queer perspective. That's so powerful and exciting. Yes, that's absolutely true. And several theologies of liberation, uh, feminist liberation theology, black liberation theology, uh, queer liberation theology, all use the idea that human beings are made in God's image to say God is black, God is a woman, God is queer, God is transgender. Um, And what is at work there is pointing out that throughout the Christian tradition, God identifies with people on the margins, people who experience social oppression, um, are people God prefers. And Mm -hmm. so that means um, not just God also loves queer people, but God is queer. Right. Um, And and, disabled. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I think it just takes, it takes courage. And even more than that, it takes creativity to share stories of vulnerability and connection, especially when you're, when you're offering a way of understanding stories that had been very narrowly construed by some traditions, right. And making space in communities of faith for more expansive um, and beautiful uh, ways to be vulnerable together as people of faith. Author and researcher Brene Brown calls herself a researcher storyteller. And that title makes me think of you in your, in your piece, Stairs and Prayers and elsewhere, you share your own stories of being gay, as well as stories um, other LGBTQ people have told you or that you have read and you, you treat them with such nuanced analysis and even an irreverent wit and a persuasive skill of encouraging us to see the world from a different perspective, to tell the stories differently. And now in your most recent co-authored book, Consent on Campus, you're again asking us with courage and creativity to rethink painful stories about the rampant lack of consent for sexual activity among college students. Your book offers an alternative narrative of consent that's a more hopeful vision for sexual encounters and healthy relationships and ways to have inclusive stories that put forth consent, not just as a mandatory minimum, but as a beautiful opportunity. Can you talk to us about how you think the story of consent needs to be reimagined? Yes. So you raise a few important points here, and I want to make sure I respond to all of the parts of your question. Uh, So first, you talked about vulnerability in storytelling. And I have to say, I fought with myself for months about whether to write this defining moments piece at all. Mm -hmm. And you were one of the voices who encouraged me to do that. And so I should say thank you for that. Um, And I also want to mention my friend and colleague, Teresa Kolbaga, whose expertise is in creative nonfiction and memoir. And she was the first person I told about the idea for the defining moments article. 
And uh, this is something that happens to me a lot, actually. I will tell a friend uh, or a colleague that I have an idea for an article, and I will say this in a way that I make very clear, I hope they're going to talk me out of it, right? Please tell me (laughs) not to do this, that I have enough other projects. Um, And uh, of course, she uh, said, you absolutely have to write this. This sounds amazing. And she was kind enough to give me a whole reading list in how to do this kind of writing. And so I spent weeks just reading before I even started writing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really hesitated about whether to share something so vulnerable, and I almost didn't write it. Uh, But I'm really glad that I did. So I I wanted to respond to that part of your comment um, about about vulnerability and storytelling um, to, to say, yes, I absolutely hear that, and I think it's really important. I'm so glad. Yeah, thank you. Me too. Uh, the other reason I mentioned Teresa is that she and I co-authored the book, Campuses of Consent. Um, and as you said, it was published in September of 2019 by University of Massachusetts Press. And in the book, we argue for a more expansive understanding of consent. So we argue that consent is often imagined as individual, and it's often imagined in terms of active and passive binaries where one person gives consent and the other person receives consent. And instead, we envision consent as a radical respect for boundaries, including physical, Mm -hmm. emotional, and intellectual boundaries. And so we talk about the social, structural, and organizational constraints on consent and responsibilities for consent. Consent can and should become a community value. So the book talks about sexual consent, of course, but also emotional consent and intellectual consent. And so we have examples in the form of trigger warnings in university classrooms as a type Mm -hmm. of intellectual and emotional consent. And we also have a whole chapter about what a consent-centric pedagogy might look like. That sounds incredible. Can you say a little bit more about how that would relate to the dominant narratives about sexuality already on campus? I mean, that are active now? Yes. So what we hear in the dominant narratives on campus is that consent is all about um, individual people Mm -hmm. and the choices that they make. And uh, this whole book started because on the campus where we work, uh, uh, the university where we work, there were, in the fall of 2016, um, two different notices sent around through the internal communication system about sexual assaults that occurred Um, involving students from the university. And in both of those notices, consent was defined really poorly, not in line with feminist definitions of consent. Uh, The target's use of alcohol was mentioned in each of those notices at least three times. Mm. And the advice that was given for avoiding uh, assault seemed to put responsibility and blame on the person assaulted rather than on the person doing the assaulting. And uh, 
so we, again, we were angry about this. And in our exchange of emails and texts uh, expressing our outrage about the way that these statements were written, uh, we ended up outlining an article that then turned into um, a book project. And so um, the... But to, you know, to answer your question, the way that consent is most often discussed on campus is very individualistic mm-hmm. and puts uh, all of the responsibility and blame on the person who is targeted and not on the person who does the assaulting. So we um, draw from a lot of brilliant people who are thinking about these kinds of questions, but we start to pose questions about what it could look like to construct a campus where consent is a community responsibility and a community value. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also then want to construct a campus that when harm is done, um, that we talk about that harm uh, using the active voice. And I realize I just used the passive voice in my previous sentence, uh, but that, that we would do that in a way um, that does not put the responsibility on the person um, who was attacked, but instead on the perpetrator. Right. And so that is for us a way of imagining in much broader terms and in terms that are more consistent with our values instead of the values of neoliberal individualism, Mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, consent has become a product to package universities can yeah. purchase, you know, a training uh, workshop and make their students take this training online before they're allowed to register. And that allows them to throw up their hands and say, we did it. We met the minimum federal requirements for training our students about consent. Um, but we pose the question, you know, what is the mission of the university? Isn't it supposed to have something to do with educating people? And <laughs> if it is, shouldn't we care more about doing that and about constructing the kind of campus and the kind of world that we imagine, uh, rather than meeting minimum legal standards uh, for saying, yes, we've educated students about consent? Right. And then that educational process is going to have to include sexuality. That's a normal, healthy part of anybody, including young, mostly younger people at, uh, at universities and, um, or at universities like mine. Some universities have much more age diverse, um, groups there. Anyway, my point being only that there's sexuality is a normal part of, people and therefore should be a normal and healthy and comprehensive part of the story we tell as educators about helping people to become all that they can be and to be well-educated people uh, who think about the values and the uh, ways in which they relate to other people as part of a community, whether that's a university community or a business or uh, other organization that they belong to or more of a neighborhood 
kind of community. In all these cases, you're talking about the power of the way in which we tell stories on both a cultural level, right, and an institutional level, and then also on that individual level, and, and how important it is not to, resi uh, to make those stories out to be very simplistic and individualistic. As we, uh, which, as we start to wrap up, I wanted to ask if there's other important insights about how we tell stories, either of consent or of identity or other issues. We've touched on so many things here, um, but things that haven't come up yet that you'd like to share. So I do think we should talk about whiteness for a moment um, because you mentioned intersectionality a couple of times and, and positionality, and I think that's really important. Um, and we talked about uh, the sort of elements of my identity that I focused on in that short piece, um, but we didn't talk about my whiteness. And I, I think it's really important to uh, mention here um, that my whiteness protects me from a lot. It protects mm -hmm. me in public from people behaving in ruder ways than they do or in uh, violent ways. The fact that when, when people see me, they perceive me as a man. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so my gender and my, my cisness and my gender expression um, all protect me. And um, all of the times that, that strangers in public have prayed for me, those have been people I would perceive as white. Mm -hmm. And so I, I wonder in what ways uh, whiteness enables those kinds of incursions onto someone else's personal space. Um, but also in what ways does my whiteness protect me from more of that happening? And uh, I, I think that that's important to mention, even though it's not something we've centered so far and it's not something um, that that comes up in the limited space of the article um, in perhaps the ways that looking back, that might be something I would do differently if I were revising it. Um, but I think that's important to uh, mention. I agree. And I, I think I, I appreciate your, your saying that, you know, when we look at so many identities, such as disability and sexuality, and how those intersect with faith in particular and with performances of gender, um, yeah, absolutely. Whiteness is also a huge part of it. People of color have very different experiences to share about their experiences with disability, with sexuality, uh, with religion and how, or faith, and how those things can come together in very different and unfortunately, as we're seeing yet again right now, right, in some very painful and, and violent and, and dangerous ways. Um, and uh, I appreciate your, your bringing that up. I want to thank uh, Dr. Leland Spencer for joining me today and the staff of Defining Moments for inviting me to be a guest host. Defining Moments is produced by WOUB Public Media and the Barbara Gerald Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact. Adam Rich is our co-producer. You can subscribe to Defining Moments at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or the NPR Podcast Directory. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. On our Facebook page, we provide links to Leland's recent article. And remember, you can get a discount on his recent co-authored book published by the University of Massachusetts Press. For your convenience, we've placed a link to ordering the book on our Facebook page. 
We hope you'll take the time to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Go in peace. Love one another. Thank you.